So I think the first question to ask is, uh, why is there such a, a nationwide protest? And the main, my main answer would be that dictatorships are usually quite clever in that they suppress politically their opponents, they don't allow people to um, organize, to mobilize, trade unions are made illegal and so on, but they never interfere in people's private lives. They let people live the way they want to. I mean, that was what we knew under the Shah. Uh, so you couldn't have a political party, you couldn't have even a small study group in your university hall, but uh, you could do what you wanted in your own home, you could dress the way you wanted outside, you could uh, dress the way you wanted, and in fact there was an encouragement to divert attention from politics by allowing you to live your life the way you did. And I think Iran's Islamic Republic is very different in this term, in terms of this kind of dictatorship from other dictatorship, in that it wants to dictate what people wear, um, you know, what they eat, what they drink, how they socialize, and so on. And in some ways, I think it is this that has, uh, if you like, energized, mobilized the current situation. The protests have clearly created a very difficult situation for the government in Iran, because on the one hand, they can't easily back down from the issue of hijab, despite the fact that the reformist factions are saying, let's give up on this, it's not that important, it wasn't in the Quran, and all the rest of the religious arguments that go with it. But why, is, why can't you back down? I think the Islamic Republic can't back down from the issue of hijab because it's backed down on everything else regarding 1979 revolution. So this was a revolution to be, um, independence was quite important about it. Okay, Iran can claim that it has a level of political independence, but it's economic independence on the capitalist system, on the global capital system, makes it dependent whether it likes it or not. And at least so far, uh, China is not the hegemon powers that can take Iran under its wing and, um, and so on. But also this Islamic revolution happened during the Soviet era. The slogan of the Islamists was neither East nor West. Islam is the only answer. So they can't really claim much about that. This was the government of the disinherited, the poor. This was going to liberate the poor. Well, that's become a bit of a joke now. The rich are getting richer and richer, mainly those associated with the government, or those who are related to Ayatollah, or those who have enough connections to benefit from the contracts that the government has. The gap between the rich and the poor is one of the highest in the developing world, in the emerging economies, as people keep telling us. The Gini factor for Iran is very high, even compared to Saudi Arabia, believe it or not, or neighboring countries. Um, Islam is the only thing, more or less, that has stayed for the government. Its legitimacy or its um, way of justifying staying in power can't be on the issue of 
anti-imperialism, even its own supporters don't believe the anti-US rhetoric. They know it's rhetoric. They know uh, that as soon as these people can, they get a green card for themselves and their families. And in a way, that's why, by the way, sanctions can be useful, successful, because a lot of senior clerics in Iran, especially their relatives, have green cards. Um, or are applying to become US citizens. So really no one believes in this anti-US slogan um, that the government keeps putting around. Um, but Islam is something with which you can keep certain sections of your supporters. And that's why the government can't back down on hijab, or at least the supreme leader can't come around and say, as the reformist keeps telling him, let's, uh, uh, let's try and um, ignore this issue. It's interesting that this has come after two, three years when hijab hadn't, had almost disappeared as an issue because women had in, uh, taken, if you like, control of the situation and were going around in major cities, but not just in rich areas, in the south of Tehran, in poorer areas, without a headscarf. I uh, spoke to a lot of students who came back from Iran uh, until uh, Raisi became president, where, who were saying the hijab is no longer an issue. If you want to, you can go around without a hijab. So the reimposition of hijab in the middle of a failure of a nuclear negotiations, failure because it had reached an impasse and it wasn't going anywhere and the economy was going down and down, uh, was bizarre if you uh, might like to consider it, but it was inevitable that it would lead to clashes. Now for the first few months, the, uh, 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 the people who were trying to impose the hijab were quite soft about their approach to hijab, but this became harsher and harsher, and even before the incident with um, uh, Masa Amini, there were examples of people having been arrested, having been beaten up by the um, Gashte Ershad, which is the uh, guidance part of the military forces. Um, but in some ways, um, the whole thing has brought into conflict the two uh, parts of the, if you like, of Iran that have never um, settled with an Islamic Republic, uh, women and Kurds at the same time, because Massa was Kurdish. So why women? Because irris irrespective of the issue of hijab, um, the Islamic Republic has really been repressive about woman, women in general. Um, you could say um, it's not even um, in their interest to do so, but they have done so. On the other hand, like many other issues, the Islamic Republic faces a contradiction. This is not the Taliban government of Afghanistan. They want on the world stage to say that they believe in women's equality. We've had, as uh, some um, pro-Iran leftists have told us time and time again, we've had deputy presidents, we have had uh, leader of the Iranian parliament has been a woman. 
um, uh, when we were uh, joining Stop the War meetings, they were telling us a whole brigade of firefighters in, in Tehran are women. That is all true. In terms of the political offices, these were women who were very close to uh, centers of power. Um, ironically, many of them were also related to uh, senior ayatollahs, the daughter of this ayatollah, the daughter-in-law of another ayatollah, and so on. Um, but the fact that the Islamic Republic doesn't want to say, oh, we don't give, uh, we, we are against women's rights, is not something they, they are proud of. On the opposite, on, quite on the contrary, they want to present themselves as people who are defending women's rights. But on the other hand, in this dilemma of trying to be modern on the one hand, have it, trying to keep the Islamists within their own ranks happy, uh, they have created a very strange situation. So 60% of university students are in Iran are female, and yet um, uh, women who finish degrees are, find it very difficult to find a job. I have to say, people who finish universities find it very uh, very difficult to find a job because of the economic situation, because of sanctions, because industry has shut down. But women find it much more difficult. Employment rate for the official employment rate for women is only 13%. Um, and you're dealing with a, a, a urban population. Uh, the rural areas have been forced into urban areas part of the economy's politics of the economic policies of the Islamic Republic has impoverished peasants even further than they were during the Shah because um, again those in power took control of import of rice tea products that were if you like the basic food of Iranians or basic drink for Iranians and brought cheaper uh, food from abroad that way, the internal production died down. So you don't have this internal production. So the peasants have been forced into shanty towns, urban areas, depending on what wealth they have. And in this situation, uh, women are forced to work um, in temporary jobs. Many of them um, work in the black market. Many of them work um, at home. They get the jobs delivered and, um, um, and so on. But in some ways, you could say that this labor force, this female labor force, is facing a far more serious burden than the ordinary labor, um, than, than the general labor force. And here, I want to also add the, 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 the problem with um, sanctions and economic issues related to sanctions. So prices have been going up. We've been talking about this. 45% inflation rate is quite normal in Iran. Nothing, um, no one worries about the 45% inflation rate. But there's also shortage of basic foods. So Iranians uh, found that rice was becoming expensive with the start of Ukraine war. Bread was becoming expensive. They ended up buying pasta. Then people were saying pasta is beyond our um, capability to buy. All of this is added pressure on women because after all, not only do they, be, do they have to be part breadwinner in the family because the household's income has gone down further and further, 
but in the chaos of the government's economic policies, given sanctions, given serious corruption, corruption is at every layer of society. Women are the, those responsible to deal with food shortages. Women are those responsible to pay for um, uh, 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 queue for hours to find basic food and then try and feed a family of six, seven, four, five, whatever. So the pressure on women has been tremendous in the last few years. We shouldn't underestimate that. And that's why added to this, this pressure about what you wear, how you wear it, is the headscarf covering exactly all of your fringe or is it a couple of centimeters above your fringe as it was the case with Masa Amini is really was the last straw I think and it is that that has created this eruption of anger which has then en um, engulfed the rest of the population it has engulfed the youth the young people who in the hijab law and in poverty, find a, a common cause with the, with the initial demonstrators, women who were demonstrating against hijab. But also, um, if you like, the, the people who demonstrated in 2018, 2019, their protests were quickly um, repressed, uh, smashed by the security forces. They've joined these protests. So, what were those protests? I think in 2019, if I remember correctly, it was um, uh, removal of subsidies. And why did Iran uh, remove fuel subsidies? Well, Iran is part of the, um, uh, uh, it uh, has taken loans from the International Monetary Fund. It tries very hard to keep in good terms with the IMF. It follows the neoliberal economic policies that the World Bank and the IMF dictate um, step by step. It tries to be uh, very uh, strictly adherent to those. Uh, Ahmadinejad won the title of the best country following IMF rules, although he was president under a different pretense uh, later on. But you could say both the reformists and the conservatives uh, factions of the government have followed um, the neoliberal economic policies uh, as they've been told. That is why you have privatization, massive privatization. So there are workers who haven't been paid because their privatized firm is not getting, uh, um, is uh, getting away with not paying salaries months in, months out. You have uh, people who've lost their job because of sanctions or because of the privatization policies. You have this um, unbelievable showing off of wealth by a tiny minority on social media. And this new generation, this new generations that, if you like, the school students, the university students that are uh, very much have kept alive these protests are, as they say themselves, the generation with mobile phone, they are the generation of apps. So if me uh, sitting in Oxford can see how the, uh, uh, what is it called, the rich kids of Iran, who are often related to senior ayatollahs, senior government officials, senior ministers of the Islamic government, show off their wealth, 
um, with Ferraris, with their travels, with their swimming pools, with their unbelievable wealth, then I'm sure the kids in Tehran are seeing the rich kids of Iran, right? And this has angered people because they are facing real poverty. I think the, um, the, this category of Middle Eastern rich, not just in Iran, but also in Saudi Arabia or the Persian Gulf countries are very adamant as showing off their uh, um, astronomic wealth. So it's even, if you like, it's made people even more angry than before. And th this is a situation where, as I said, the sugarcane workers who have been, who joined the protest, if you like, almost the first week after the slogans death to dictator became common in Iran. Uh, these workers have been on strike on protests for about four years, five years at least. And what is their problem? Was their sugarcane company was privatized. Lots of people lost their jobs. Anyone who's been uh, promoting their um, case has been arrested. And of course, they, are de they were demonstrating anyway. They were demonstrating regularly in, in Ahbaz, in Haftafe, in the neighboring cities. It was inevitable they would join these protests. The um, uh, uh, workers in Asaluya, petrochemical workers, were amongst those who joined last week the protests. The teachers, teachers in Iran, have been in a dispute with the government for um, at least a year. And this is not just about salaries. Teachers are fed up of government intervention in the curriculum, in telling people what they can teach, what they can't teach, how they should deal with students who are not wearing the proper dress and so on. And so the, the syndicate of Iran's teachers, which is semi-legal, semi-illegal, was again part of the protest. They supported their students. If I don't know if you've seen footage, but there's footage of school students pushing government officials who are telling them about the virtues of wearing a hijab out of their school. And the teachers aren't stopping the kids. They're maybe not joining in, but they're definitely not imposing a discipline to the kids. Um, the legal profession is really tired because of corruption. So if you have a legal case in Iran, you know very well that there's no, if you have no way of progressing this, however tiny the matter is, without paying backhanders. And lawyers are finding it very difficult because in a way their, their whole profession is under pressure. So they staged a demonstration last week. They were amongst the people who staged, at least in Tehran, they were, um, they were part of the demonstrations. The examples I've given you uh, are, if you like, the strengths of these protests. Uh, the protesters are mainly young, some are school children, and they are not scared. They don't scare easily. So the way the government usually uh, deals with protests is to try and uh, send the army, send the pastor on, send Basij. In this case, according to some reports, they have sent Basij, which is a militia force of the Islamic Republic, and they've used police, security police. Um, 
but that hasn't worked. Uh, and there are very rare cases where you do see uh, members of um, the security forces, the police, or soldiers, where they've used soldiers in provincial areas, uh, moving away, turning their backs to their own colleagues and walking. There is a very a touching picture of an old woman who takes the hand of her son, who is a soldier, and tells her him, and you can hear it in the video, tells him it's not worth your life, and they move away. However, I have to stress that at the moment, such cases are very rare. We are not seeing, um, despite Musavi, the leader of the Green, former Green movement, uh, calling on soldiers and um, police to stay with the people. I don't know what that means. I would have thought uh, staying with the people also implies opposing the government, but he's not brave and, well, he's under house arrest, but he didn't say that. Uh, but um, it, we don't see, if you like, a massive opposition. However, the strength of the movement is it hasn't gone away. We are entering week five. Uh, I would say it's stronger today than it was four weeks ago, partly because the workers have joined now, partly because um, it is so widespread that you, the government is not in a position to send troops to one place. So if you look at the map, a few weeks ago, it was something like 35 cities. Now we are talking of all the provinces of Iran in small towns, in large cities. And as I said, the population would have their own reason for opposing uh, the government. They might not be the same, but this diversity is a part of the strength of the movement, but at the same time, it is part of its weakness because the, the weakness is in that, uh, if you like, there is no alternative, there is no unity amongst these people for, um, uh, and there is no organization. Most of these, from what I can see, are spontaneous. It might be that a local group organizes people to go out into the street, but you don't see anything that is, um, even in terms of the internet, which is severely curtailed now, uh, organized online. Um, there is a, another strength of these protests compared to 2019 and previous spontaneous protests in that the demonstrators distance themselves very clearly from the previous regime. They, the slow, as soon as the students got involved, it was clear the slogan was death to dictator, be it leader, that's a reference to Ayatollah Khamenei, who is Iran's supreme leader, or Shah. And there's various versions of it. So um, uh, you hear people saying um, uh, no to Shah, no to Rahbar, no to uh, uh, royalty, no to Islam, various versions of it have become quite clear to the despair, I hope, of uh, exiled royalists. It is, although Mahsa was Kurd, and, and Kurdish towns have been very uh, prominent in some of these protests, Sanandaj in particular, Sabez, where she came from, 
And there, as one website in Iran, a lefty website in Iran is calling them, they are post-nationalist. In some ways, uh, I'm not sure if you can really say they're post-nationalist, but they're definitely not nationalist. So you see the same level of protest in Baluchistan in southern, southeastern Iran, as you see in um, Ahvaz in Khuzestan, as, as you see in Kurdistan. So it really has gone beyond, um, if you like, labeling it a nationalist. It's only uh, Saudi TV and Saudi supporters who want to make it a nationalist uh, protest. Why do they want to make it a nationalist protest? Because for Saudi Arabia, and I assume long-term for the US, the best hope is that Iran as it exists today fails to exist, that we end up having um, the Republic of Azerbaijan in the north of, northwest of Iran, the Republic of Baluchistan, um, and none of these will be republics, by the way, they'll be led by tribal leaders. Maybe Azerbaijan being more industrial would have something different. Uh, the Kurdish, the Kurds would join maybe the wonderful Kurdistan in Iraq, which is an, a, a true shining example of uh, corruption and uh, failed states that one could imagine the United States brought to the Middle East. So that's the Saudi plan. But this plan, as much as it's got its uh, supporters in this uh, horrible uh, Mohammed bin Salman paid TV station that broadcasts 24 hours to Iran trying to create this national division um, has failed. We can say clearly there isn't, people don't have many, you don't hear nationalist slogans, you don't hear people saying we want a great Azerbaijan. In fact, in the last few years, we have seen examples of such nationalist struggles. We don't see it now. So again, this is uh, the strength of it. Another strength of it is that despite all the efforts by the two extremely right-wing organizations, the royalists, the supporters of the extra, and the religious Mojahedin Khal, uh, um, and the massive propaganda that Voice of America, Radio Free Iran, um, uh, 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 the, uh, Mohammed bin Salman TV station are trying to do. There is clearly, they, these people have no space in this. In the case of Mujahideen Khalq, it's very interesting because as people have pointed out inside Iran, there they are exiled in Albania, paid for by um, the Saudi royal family, and they all wear headscarves. <laughs> and they married, 50 of them were forced to uh, divorce their husbands to marry the husbands that the organization had told them. And then this became the norm in the organization. So, you know, women's rights and Mujahideen Khal, no, thank you. The extras interview about women is doing the rounds of all social media. I'm glad to see that the young population in Iran sees what his opinion about women's rights were. So they're obviously no place, but there is no other alternative either. So it is the, if you like the strength or the positive side of this is that 
these right-wing opposition forces aren't um, anywhere, uh, don't stand any chance. Uh, but on the other hand, there is no alternative. We don't see, I can't see um, um, anything that is organized or can do something. Now, there is a, another problem here, and that is that um, um, there is this illusion, and, and some of the Iranian left believe in this illusion, that somehow by magic, by miracle, these spontaneous demonstrations will create within themselves a revolutionary force, a revolutionary radical um, working class, pro-working class, anti-capitalist uh, alternative. And of course, that isn't true. If you don't have organizations, if you've got the left that has been all over the place in the last few years, some of them supporting some sanctions, some of them uh, supporting US military interventions in the Middle East, you can't suddenly then expect that a revolutionary movement, a spontaneous revolutionary movement um, will rise from the uh, protests and will win everything else. There are other negative things about weaknesses I would call from for this, these protests, and that's the role of celebrities. And I, <laughs> I'm sure this will happen when there's revolutionary protest in, the, in our era. Uh, so on social media, all these celebrities who until yesterday were part of the, if you like, were, were working with the Iranian government, are trying to distance themselves. Again, I'm not saying this is just negative. There is the positive aspect of it, football players, film uh, stars, actors, um, theater players, and so on, um, directors, and so on. I'm not saying it's all negative, but on the other hand, this whole celebrity culture that social media has um, imposed on ordinary people, and especially on the young, is not something very positive. I want to spend a bit of time on the slogans. So I did say about the best to dictator, I think is probably the most common one. After that, um, and among, and from the start, one of the slogans was women, uh, life, uh, freedom, women, life, freedom. And this is, as all of you will know, is actually a Kurdish slogan. It was used uh, by the PKK. It was used by uh, Rakova in, um, Turk, in uh, uh, Syrian uh, Kurdish areas. Again, we have to say the positive side of it because there is a positive side of it because the Shahis were trying, the royalists were trying to change it to something called people or men, depending on who they were, country um, uh, uh, return to freedom, as if there was a freedom under the Shah. So the alternative to this fortunately didn't win. It remains a slogan that a lot of people are using. Some on the left have actually adopted it as if it's their slogan. I've already written why I think there are serious problems with just repeating this slogan and not trying to um, go beyond it. 
the, the main weakness of it is you have to really explain it. You have to say, what do you mean? Who, which women? Are, are we saying <laughs> any woman from any class? Um, are we saying uh, women who are part of the um, security forces who beat up people like Massa, uh, people who are uh, arresting political prisoners, the guards in Evin prison who are women? Are we saying they are, um, uh, they are part of the revolutionary process? Life for whom? Freedom for whom? And especially when it comes to the issue of freedom, I mean, what does freedom mean in the 21st century if you are in a situation in a country emerging economy, as we keep calling it, with such terrible economic situations, such major gaps between the rich and the poor? It's completely meaningless. Um, so I, I think these are the negative parts of this slogan. And I think the left um, has now, at least in the last two weeks, I see a lot, I hear a lot more slogans that the workers have been putting forward. Some of them are the old slogans of 1979, um, bread, work, uh, freedom, non-card Azadi, or versions of this slogan. Um, they're not very, they're not 100% either, so I'm not uh, saying we should go with that. All I'm trying to say is that um, um, the slogan itself, woman, life, freedom, has many interpretations. One of the worst aspects of it is that when it would fail, and I didn't realize this, but having read an article by a comrade, uh, Shahab Borhan, in France, I realized that that seems to be the case. Uh, having failed to impose their own slogan, the royalists are also now using this slogan. Mujahideen are using it, liberals are using it. And here, there is a problem. So on the one hand, uh, the slogan can unite a lot of people. On the other hand, the, the weakness of this slogan is it's a return of let us all unite, never mind our differences. And of course, 1979 has a very good lesson for all of us, this type of unity for the sake of unity, unity in opposition without discussing what are our, what alternatives do we want? What kind of life do we want? What kind of freedom are we talking about? Are we talking about economic democracy or political democracy or um, abolition of state or whatever? If you don't, and you're just uniting for the sake of unity, which seems to be the position of some of the left, rightly criticized by this comrade, then you are uh, you're actually um, uh, selling out. This, this, you're repeating the mistake of 1979. It was terrible when it happened and Khomeini came to power as a result of it. It would be even worse. Um, in the 21st century. Um, in terms of the international re re reactions, um, I've already said about the Saudis, they can't believe their luck. Um, there we are talking about protests in Iran. 
they are very keen on uh, getting their, uh, exaggerating what is happening. So events happen in Iran there, Mohammed bin Salman TV in Persian tells the Iranian people at least 10 times the number of what's happening. I don't believe any videos they showed. Some of it might be true, but once you, uh, once you recognize a fake news channel, you should just ignore it, in my opinion. As far as I can tell, the Israelis haven't been celebrating, but I'm sure they are not unhappy, mainly because basically the events in Iran have put an end to any speculation about the nuclear deal. And uh, Biden, um, Biden's Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, last week said, we're not talking anymore about JCPOA, we are only concerned about the protests. And that would be a disaster if they uh, intervene, because that would prove all the stuff that the regime is selling to its own supporters, that everyone loves us. These, these are all just foreign intervention, foreign TV channels are forcing this. It's not true. It won't happen. And we are, um, we are victims here. We are victims of a, in, uh, of a conspiracy by the enemies of Islam. So foreign intervention would be terrible. But that hasn't stopped the royalist Mujahideen to ask for foreign intervention and to ask for more sanctions. Now, sanctions, as I've said before, have created um, a, a dire economic situation. And people in Iran are not asking for foreign intervention. They are asking for support. And I think it's good when there's support from below. There's been spontaneous acts of uh, support by women in many European countries, but also I noticed by people in uh, uh, neighboring countries in Turkey, in Afghanistan, and that's positive. It is a show of solidarity. The um, end of political Islam in Iran is not going to be easy. And therefore, uh, we are looking at a very, um, if you like, unclear future in terms of what can happen, what are the type of, um, we are not at the time when the regime is falling, but I think that the regime is facing its most serious challenge more than 2009. Why more than 2009? 2009, the leadership of the opposition was part of the regime. Musavi, Karubi, Zahra Rahnavar were all, uh, if you like, the children or the leaders of the uh, Islamic revolution. They were part and parcel of the Islamic revolution. And in some ways, they basically stopped the rebellion with submitting to the supreme leader by refusing to go beyond certain slogans. We challenged the presidential election, but never seriously challenged the position of the supreme leader. They worked, if you like, as a stop to the massive protests that took place in 2009. They were larger, they were better organized, obviously, because half of the Islamic Republic was organizing those demonstrations. But in some ways, they were very limited because of the leadership of that movement. And that leadership very clearly tried to stop the protests in 2009. These protests have no leaders, but they can go beyond. 
and quite clearly so far, and we can only say so far because tomorrow things can change, the government's attempts at suppressing the protest hasn't worked. We can say with relative confidence that um, they will go on. Um, in that way, we're, we can look as the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic. This is not the end of the Islamic Republic, but we can talk of the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic. I was amazed that the Lebanese channel, which is usually associated with uh, Hezbollah, has a, had a program yesterday um, on uh, uh, Iran protests. I mean, this is, you know, they've got, they've heard the message. Um, and in some ways, we are looking at two types of alternatives. If it's from above, it, if it becomes a kind of color revolution with US or its allies promoting a false leader, and they can do this. They have the media, the young are desperate. They can promote and present false leadership of this thing. They have tried so far, everyone they've tried has failed, but this doesn't mean it will stay at that. Um, then we will, we will face a, a regime change, but no revolution, no uprising, no political change. It will remain, uh, the new state, in my opinion, will face so many social, political, and economic cha challenges that we, it will inevitably resume repression. And this repression will start by the repression of the poorer sections of the population and all these people that I mentioned earlier, workers who haven't been paid, teachers who are fed up of uh, state intervention, women who are tired of having to deal with high prices, all the rest of it. Um, however, um, there can be a, a continuation of this protest, these protests that will get more and more sections of the working class involved. Now, the uh, the last 30 years, at least, of the Islamic Republic has seen a major attack on the working class. The neoliberal economic policies did decimate the Iranian working class. So last week we had, for the first time, a call by oil workers to join the protest, the National Union of Oil Workers. And as I said, there as one petrochemical company shot, another one was semi-shot. But really the oil workers are not in the same position as they were in 1979, because the state has privatized most of the oil industry. There are contract companies, there are small little bits of this company. Every section has a service section. And so there is no such a thing as the kind of strong working class that that did eventually bring down the Shah, um, the strike of the oil workers. And therefore, um, it, it, the longer this process goes on, we might see more workers' involvement, we might see um, uh, uh, levels of uh, uh, an, uh, an improvement in the slogans from uh, just women, life, and freedom to more uh, class-based um, slogans. There is a third 
possibility and that is that in order to survive the supreme leader makes a u-turn i can't uh, i can't see him doing that he's not least trust um, but um, who knows that's one possibility so the the alternative to if you like a weakening of the regime is um, going for even more repression and that would be um, that is still possible as i said before some people are saying that the islamic um, the past art the revolutionary guards haven't been deployed yet um, the state has relied on the army and the militia um, the fire in evin prison last night gives us um, a, a the kind of thing the government can do. There are contradictory reports about the fire in Evin prison. Some people are saying, uh, the government is saying there was um, a fight in the non-political section. It's a good job they're saying non-political section because they know the, po the political prisoners are using phones, they're using contacts. Uh, and so they're saying it was in the non-political section of Evin prison, there was a a riot, a fight, and that led to the fire. Um, there are reports that um, actually firebombs were um, sent into Evin prison. And if that is the case, that is an escalation that the states want to do. There are hundreds of the current prisoners in Evin prison have been arrested during these protests. But of course, hundreds of them were there because they opposed the, the government. Uh, quite a few Hopi supporters are in Evin prison as we speak. Quite a few um, teachers, uh, leaders of the teachers' strike, uh, workers from Wahid bus company are in prison. Throughout the day, I've seen reports um, that most of the men arrested, the, the male wing of Evin prison, seems to have had very few casualties. But that is not true of the, uh, we don't know. I, we can't he hear much from the women's wing. All we know is that some uh, people were taken on a bus to regional provincial uh, prisons uh, very late last night. Um, if it is true that the state has done this, of course the state did a similar thing in Rex uh, cinema before this was the Islamists did this in Rex uh, cinema uh, in the last days of the show. This is a level of escalation, the level of, if you like, showing who is in charge that will make life much more difficult for ordinary Iranians. Um, but barring those, one could envisage a situation where these protests will continue, other people will join it, and eventually sections of the of the um, pro-government security forces will find it hard to continue fighting. There are quite a lot of reports, even by the government itself, of security forces having been injured. And I think the government says five dead. So the security forces aren't having their own way as they did in 2018 or 2019 but they still have the upper hand. And that is why um, we are at the beginning, I would say, of these protests, not um, nowhere near the end. Thank you.